Well, we're halfway through the uh, games of the 31st Olympiad. You've had one week to kind of get yourself into the Olympic spirit. So I don't know how, where you're at in the process. Uh, I imagine that some of us have perhaps disengaged a little bit from this uh, set of Olympics. The ratings, I think TV ratings are a bit down and... Um, Something about like doping scandals and corruption and injustice and sanitation issues have kind of unsettled the Olympic spirit for some people. But, um, but I got to tell you, I am undaunted in my love for the Olympics. I'm not a big, you know, pool fan or whatever, you know, the first week aren't necessarily the sports that I love, but I find myself as energized as ever um, by the Olympics, and I think for me, and maybe some of you can identify with this, I think for me, a part of maybe even the majority of my Olympic spirit has to do with the myth of the Olympic athlete, right? Like this, this narrative that gets told over and over and over again of, of Joe or Josephine who, you know, work for Home Depot during the day and they train early morning and late at night and on the weekends and they're just ordinary, regular people who have discovered this, you know, athletic magic that lives inside of them and they're turning their lives into this extraordinary athletic um, achievement. This is the story we tell ourselves over and over again during the Olympics. I think my, my favorite version of the story uh, is from 20 years ago, the Olympics 20 years ago, 1996, Canadian sprinter Donovan Bailey you know, shatters the world record for the 100 meter, runs a 9.84, shatters the world record for the top speed ever achieved by a human being, 27 miles an hour or whatever it was. It was some insane Nobody, you know, even as his 100-meter world record fell, nobody could top his top speed until Usain Bolt basically ruined the sport for everybody. <laughs> it's just awesome to watch. But the thing about Donovan Bailey, literally, you know, the, the fastest human being who'd ever run until just recently, um, up until 1991 and even beyond, he was a stockbroker in Oakville. Right? Like he was sprinting and competing. And this is five years before he shatters the world record. He's a stockbroker in Oakville. And actually just a couple years earlier than that, he had decided as a stockbroker that he needed to get into to better shape. And so he, he signed up and, and joined the, basically the Oakville Olympic Club and started to run and to train with their runners and their coaches. And somebody saw the magic in Donovan Bailey. And said, you know, you should really start training. I think you could really be something. And all of a sudden, Donovan Bailey discovers that inside of him, he's got this incredible, unique gift that he didn't even know was there. And as he, as he tapped into it and leaned into it, he, he became something extraordinary. And it's this amazing story that I think resonates with People like me, people like us, because it gives us hope for our own story, right? It taps into this cultural myth, this cultural narrative that we live in that all of us are extraordinary and all of us are unique. And if we could just discover that uniqueness inside of us and, and live in, learn to live into it, we could become these extraordinary people who live extraordinary lives and accomplish extraordinary things. 
right? It's a story, it's a narrative that gets told in a million inspirational posters of cats hanging from clotheslines, right? Or, you know, skydiving teams. It's this, it, it, by a million inspirational memes on Facebook. If you believe it, you can achieve it. Right? A million inspirational videos that tell you that you've got to, to discover the dream that resides in your soul. And if you can live into your dream with passion, then on your deathbed, you won't regret uh, you know, the life you never lived, the things you never did. We live with this, with this lofty dream of imagining that there's this incredible thing inside of each one of us and our lives could be extraordinary. And, and that narrative has gotten interwoven with the narratives we tell ourselves in church. The most famous, the most popular TV preacher launched his national and international career with a book called Your Best Life Now. That's God's dream for you. He wants your best life now. And it doesn't sit alone on the bookshelf. It sits beside books like the one called Greater. You know, dream bigger, start smaller, ignite God's vision for your life. This whole idea that we need to discover God's vision for my life. And if I can, if I can discover that extraordinariness that God has put inside of me, then I can be extraordinary and do extraordinary things for God. You, you hear about it in the church, right? I talk to people who say, I just need to discover my spiritual gift. I just need to, I need to know my calling. I need to find out. I need to figure out this, this purpose that God has for my life so that I can live the life God wants me to live. And as I think about that, I mean, honestly, I've, like I've preached those kinds of things from the stage. That the pathway to a to life to the full is discovering who God has created you to be, finding your passion and your gifts and just leaning into them and allowing God to use you to make an extraordinary difference in the world. And, and the more I process that idea, the more I begin to wonder how helpful or even how biblical it actually really is. I've been reading a book recently by a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor who talks about sort of this shared vision that we have in our culture for human flourishing. He, he says in his book that there is this idea that under the right set of conditions, under the right set of circumstances, there is a life that is richer and deeper and fuller and more meaningful, more worthwhile than the life that I'm living. There is this life the way it's supposed to be lived, life the way it should be. And he says we kind of... We've bought into this idea as a culture that we're all in pursuit of this life of human flourishing. But, but Taylor says in his book that along with that lofty ideal comes a dark side, a shadow side filled with fear and frustration. That if out there there is a deeper, richer, more meaningful, more worthwhile way to live, that's related to me discovering the uniqueness inside of me so that I can become extraordinary and accomplish things that are extraordinary. Um, if, along with that belief comes this fear that I might never experience that. I might never discover my extraordinariness. There comes this frustration that acknowledges the gap between the life that I'm living and this extraordinary life God wants me to live. And, and there's this sense of frustration that settles in. 
It's kind of the same set of dual emotions that comes along with this romantic idea we have in our culture of the one, right? That God has created the perfect person for you. There's the one. And, and if you can find the one and get into a relationship with the one, then your life can be full and rich and meaningful and your relationship can be extraordinary and, and your marriage life and your family life can be everything you always hoped it would be. And along with this lofty ideal of the one that's told in every, the story of every romantic comedy ever written comes this fear and this frustration. What if I never meet the one? What if I've met the one and I didn't know it? What if I was dating the one and we broke up? What if I will never marry the one? We live with this sense of frustration. I'm not sure the one I'm married to is the one. right? What if there's another one um, and we get... You, you see what I mean? Like it comes, this whole romantic ideal comes with this this dark fear and frustration. And I hear when it comes to this idea that God has created you to be extraordinary and to live this extraordinary life of making an extraordinary difference, I hear that same fear and frustration in the church. I hear people, you know, I hear it when I talk to stay-at-home parents who wonder what God's purpose for their life is as they're changing diapers at 2 a.m. I hear it in the frustration of people who say, I just don't know what my spiritual gift is. I just don't know what I'm passionate about. I don't know what my calling is. And, and their whole life is on hold. They've just pressed pause on their life while they're waiting to discover what, how God, what God wants them to do with their life. I hear it in um, the midlife questions of the people that I talk to, the closer I get to midlife, the less I use the word crisis and the more I use the word questions. But has my life been significant? Have I been doing the things I was supposed to be doing? This is like the sermon of air quotes, this, what I was supposed to be doing. Have I accomplished anything that matters? I, I live it sometimes. Which is kind of funny because I think I have a job that's meaningful and I think I play a role that is somewhat significant. I think I do significant things. I believe that, about, even if it's not true. I believe that about my life, that I'm engaged in doing significant things. And I think I've been a part of doing something positive in our community and who God is making our church to be. And yet... I still, like so many other people, there are times when I battle the insecurity of insignificance, where that voice in my head says, you know, what you do doesn't make any difference. Right? I begin to wonder, have I, have I done all the things that God wants me to do, or have I kind of plateaued, have I settled for this sort of middle-of-the-road existence? But God wants me, God wants me to write a book, God wants me to to whatever, you know, is there more that God wants me to do? What else could I be doing? And this, it's this question of am I really living the extraordinary life and making the extraordinary difference that God has called me to make? And, and I believe, I mean, let me just say this. I believe that you're extraordinary. I believe that you're unique and beautiful and that God has created you like unlike anybody else, which means you have something to offer that nobody else has to offer. I believe that. I believe that sometimes God calls people extraordinarily and that, that people can make an extraordinary difference. I believe that Jesus said to his disciples, you'll do greater things than I ever did. And I believe Jesus' disciples did change the world. 
I just am no longer convinced that changing the world is really the point. That's not what God has called us to. I've been thinking a lot about John chapter 13, which is the story of the last time Jesus sat down and ate with his disciples before he died on the cross and we believe was raised from the dead three days later. This is the record of the final conversation they had in the final moments they had together. And as I think about this passage and I reflect on Jesus spending his final moments with his disciples, what I don't find is Jesus saying to his disciples, okay, now what you need to do is discover the extraordinary gift inside of you and, and do something extraordinary for God. This is what I read. John 13, starting in verse 4, it says, Jesus got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he began to pour water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, you have to understand, from a first century perspective, everything about this scene is disgusting. Well, it's shocking, really, starting with the fact that it's entirely about feet. And feet are gross, And if you don't believe that feet are gross, take off your footwear, including your socks, and put your bare foot up on the lap of the neighbor beside you and ask them for a foot rub. (laughs) And you discover, I think 99.9% of you would discover exactly how disgusting (laughs) our culture thinks that feet are. Um, But in in the ancient world, it's it's way, way worse. Because you're talking about people who live their entire life in a desert climate, Right? And they wear open foot shoes all the time, sandals all the time. And so their feet, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, are caked with sand and dust and dirt and grossness. Right? It's like you're camping for your whole life. That's what your feet look like. Over the last month, Krista and I took our four girls on a little road trip around New England. And we were camping the whole time. And um, because of the different campgrounds we visited because of the quality of the different facilities, because of our schedule, because of accessibility to the shower houses, because sometimes it costs money. Like, we didn't shower as often as you might normally when you were living as a part of of civilization. And I remember we were in Massachusetts, and we were walking. I was walking through this amusement park, and I looked down at my feet, and I thought, man, I'm really getting tanned. And then I kind of looked closer, and I realized, oh, no, my feet are just dirty. And I had to go to this splash pad, a kind of an impromptu bath in the splash pad, trying to clean up a little bit. Uh, Because it's just disgusting. Your feet are disgusting. But in the ancient world, right, you're not just talking about sand and dirt and dust. You're talking about a culture where animals are the primary mode of transporting people and goods. And there's not a guy walking behind every donkey with a shovel and a garbage pail on wheels like at the wine festival parade, right? Like it's just not happening. Never mind the fact that the towns in the village, the, the roads in the village were open sewers so people would take the waste from their home and they would just toss it out in the street. Like your feet were caked in more than just sand and dirt and dust. Which meant that when you came into somebody's home, it was a common courtesy for you to wash your feet and it was a common courtesy for your host to provide the resources for you to do that. It was, a, it was a service they provided for you to get this disgustingness off your feet. And they would, they would send a servant. Now, not just any servant. This job was so disgusting that you couldn't send a Jewish male by law 
the rabbi said it was beneath the station of a Jewish male, even a Jewish male servant, to wash feet. That was just too humiliating a task. You had to send either a Gentile servant or your Jewish servant's wife or kids, somebody who's got no social standing whatsoever, you send them to wash the feet. Because it's just it's too humiliating a job to assign to anybody of, of social standing. And so here's this scene. They're eating together at the table and Jesus gets up and he takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around his waist. In effect, he dons the uniform of a servant. If you had walked into the room at that exact moment and surveyed the scene, not knowing anybody in the room, you would have assumed Jesus was the help and the disciples were the guests of honor. And Jesus grabs his towel in his basin and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And then in verse 12 it says this, when he finished washing their feet, He put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed. If you do them, Jesus says to his disciples, do you get what just happened here? He says, I'm your teacher and Lord. I'm above you in social standing, in every way of ranking human beings. I'm above you in rank. But what I've chosen to do as one who is above you is I abandoned my station and I assumed the rank and station of a servant and I did the most humiliating task out of self-sacrificing, self-giving love for you. And I've set you an example. I've shown you what I want from you. Now, if I, as your master, can become your servant and wash your feet, I want you to live this way towards each other. I want you to live your entire lives in an attitude of others-oriented, self-sacrificing, humble, servant-hearted, foot-washing kind of love. That's how I want you to live. Jesus doesn't say, Find out what makes you extraordinary and go do something that's extraordinary with your life. He says, no, find out how you can assume the lowest position of the most humble slave and in an act of self-sacrificing, others-oriented love, I want you to wash people's feet. That's what I want your life to be about. And he says, now that you know this, you'll be blessed if you do them. The blessing comes in living this way. The blessing, the richness, the fullness, the depth of life doesn't come by discovering what makes you extraordinary and becoming extraordinary. The blessing, the fullness, the, the depth of meaning in life comes in as much as you adopt a lifestyle of spirit-empowered, others-oriented self-sacrificing, humble, servant-hearted, foot-washing love for the people that God has brought into your life. That's the purpose of your life. That's God's purpose for you. And the more I read the scriptures, the more I'm convinced that this is true. I, I was at a conference a little while ago, and the speaker at the conference kept pointing to some of the major figures in the scriptures, and he kept saying, you know, these people had an, ext- an unusual calling on their life, and they made an unusual difference. And the heart of his challenge was that we all have an unusual calling, and we're all called to make an unusual difference. At least that's what I'm told I left before he started speaking. So <laughs> you're forgiven. Everybody who leaves after the earlier part of the service, right? Well, you've already left, so you don't even hear my apology. But but the more I look at the scriptures, the less I think that that's true. 
Yes, there are people with unusual calling that God uses to make an unusual difference, but 99.9% of the people who walk across the pages of Scripture are nobodies. They aren't unusual, and they don't live unusual lives, and they don't make an unusual difference. 99.9% of the people in the pages of Scripture don't even have names. They're just not that extraordinary. They, they, 99.9% of the people in Scripture are in Hebrew called the Emha-Aretz, which means people of the earth. Regular Joes and Josephines who get up in the morning and go to work and work hard and come home and try to love their family as best they can and serve God in whatever ways they can, who just live ordinary lives and who are never anything unremarkable. But they are faithful. That's mo- just because there are some people with unusual callings doesn't mean that all of us need to live make an unusual difference, right? Some, uh, I, I believe that we're called to live unremarkable lives of remarkable faithfulness to others-oriented, servant-hearted love, foot-washing. In fact, there's actually in the New Testament, there's a verse where the apostle Paul says to one church, he says, I know you love each other and, I, and that's awesome. Make it your ambition. Do you want to live an ambitious life? Here's your ambition. Lead a quiet life. Work hard and earn the respect of outsiders, of people who aren't a part of the community of faith. Your ambition should be to live a quiet life. He doesn't say make it your ambition to make an extraordinary difference. He says your ambition should be to, make an or, uh, uh, to live in a quiet life of loving each other in a way that wins the respect of the people around you. That's what God has called us to. And I think we need to let go of this vision and this language of changing the world because I think God isn't calling us to change the world. God is calling us to be faithful, to live a life of spirit-empowered, others-oriented, self-sacrificing, servant-hearted, foot-washing love for the people that God has brought into our life. That's God's purpose. You. So if you're a person who's ever struggled with the insecurity of insignificance, be encouraged. God doesn't want you to live a different life. He wants you to live the life that you're living just differently in the spirit of this foot washing kind of love. That's what God wants for you. Now what's interesting, Taylor goes on to say, there are some people who don't struggle with this fear and frustration, who don't live in this dark side. He said, there are people who find a way to make compromises with life. In the sense of, like a a healthy compromise. There are people who find a way who, you know, we have this lofty ideal for what life is supposed to be, being extraordinary. We have this fear and frustration of not realizing that vision in our life. And so what Taylor says, he says, some people find this middle position compromise where you live a life that's meaningful enough to stave off the fear and frustration even though you're not living the life that's extraordinary, right? And he calls that the middle position. Here's how he describes it. He says, we come to terms with the middle position often through some stable, even routine order in life in which we're doing things which have some meaning for us. For instance, things which contribute to our ordinary happiness or things which are fulfilling in various ways or things which contribute to what we conceive of as the good or often, in the best scenario, all three. Taylor says, listen, we develop coping mechanisms for staving off the fear and frustration of not experiencing the extraordinary life. And he says, basically, there are three strategies that people adopt. Number one, they they adopt a life devoted to doing things that bring them happiness. They get married and have a family. They surround themselves with good friends. They, they do things that are fun. They go to the movies. They have adventures. They travel. God help us. They play Pokemon Go. Just things that are fun. 
He says, other people pour themselves into things that are fulfilling. You go to work and you work hard and you accomplish something and you're proud of, what, of the success you've been able to accomplish at work. It's fulfilling to you. Or you, you devote yourself to education and you earn some sort of academic accolades and, you, and, it, and it gives you a sense of accomplishment. Or you, you devote yourself to projects, whether that's like renovations or learning a new skill or going back to school, learning a language. You do something that allows you to point back and say, I accomplished that and that was meaningful for me. Or... He says, thirdly, you do something that contributes to the common good. You volunteer at a food bank or at one of our anchor causes. You, you sit on the board of a nonprofit. You, uh, you commit yourself to activism, or if you're not that energetic, slacktivism or clicktivism, or you buy a charity shirt from Sevenly or whatever. You do something to make yourself feel like you're making a difference. Or you um, just commit to being a good person. Use your snowblower to clear your neighbor's driveway or help little old ladies across the street. Somehow the world is being a better place because you're in it. And Taylor says these are the general strategies that people use to give themselves a life that feels meaningful. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things until they become a source of ultimate meaning. See, the problem with each one of those strategies is not with the activities themselves, except for maybe Pokemon Go, which I do not understand. But the, the problem with those is that they are entirely focused on you. Right? You have a family because you want meaning for you. You have a job because you want meaning for you. It's, it's my family, my kids, my career, my education. It's my goodness, my generosity. That's what's going to bring meaning to me. And you, you entirely center yourself in the middle of the main character of your own narrative, of your own story. And if it's all about you, it is never going to satisfy. You cannot generate meaning from your life entirely from your own existence. Which is why Jesus calls us to live differently than that. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says to the Colossian church, it's not supposed to be about you, it's supposed to be about Jesus. Everything you do is supposed to be about Jesus. It's not about whether or not you have a family. It's about whether or not, it's about if you have a family, does your family radiate the presence of Jesus? It's not about what your career is, about how meaningful your work is. The question is, as you go about your work, does your work, does your character radiate Jesus to the world? We're to do everything in the name of Jesus. Play Pokemon Go in the name of Jesus. Make Jesus more uh, present to the world in everything that you do. Do everything in the spirit of Jesus. In the character of Jesus, do everything in honor of Jesus, do everything for the sake of Jesus, do everything in submission for Jesus, do everything in your life for Jesus. Jesus is the center of the narrative, not you. And when you take yourself out of the narrative and you put Jesus in the middle, and in everything you do, you live it for the sake and the honor and in the character and spirit of Jesus, rather than for yourself, your life acquires a brand new kind of meaning. Our lives are going to be meaningful if we decenter ourselves and put Jesus in the center. The other problem with this strategy is that they all measure significance according to our culture's uh, prescriptions of what, me, what is significant. Our understandings of significance are cultural, not scriptural. Right? So we, 
we want to live a life that's significant, that's extraordinary. But all of our ways of defining significant and extraordinary come from our culture rather than from scripture. Right? I, I feel this in my own battle with the insecurity of insignificance. Right? I think, you know, does God want me to be doing more than what I'm doing? Right? When I, or, you know, when I start to wonder whether what I do makes a difference, I start to think about, well, how big is our church? Are we growing or not growing? How many locations do we have? Are we going to have more? Um, I start to think about what more I could do. Could I write a book? Could I start a blog? Could I start a podcast? Could I get invited to speak at conferences? Like, what can I do to increase the level of my significances? But all my significant things are all ways in which culture assesses significance, not scripture. I remember watching a, a, like a Larry King type show a while ago and the host asked their guest, a Christian leader, who the most significant Christian in the world was. And they said, oh, the most significant Christian in the world. They said, you have never heard of them and neither have I. It's not any of the famous people that uh, we know about, the Christian celebrities. In fact, it's probably some 90-year-old woman dying of cancer in a rural hospital in India who's done more for the sake of Christ than anybody else on the planet. And when, when she said that, there was something in my spirit that said, I believe that's true. I believe that God's way of measuring significance is different than our culture's way. And the more we buy into cultural definitions of significance, the more we're going to wander away from God's way. God views significance completely differently. In fact... You know, I quote this passage all the time. Jesus was once asked, you know, he's, somebody once said, you know, tell me what's the bottom line on this following God thing. And, and Jesus said, here, this is the deal. Get up every day and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love everybody else as much as you love yourself, period. That's the whole thing. That's the entire package. God doesn't measure the value of your followership by what you've accomplished. He doesn't measure the value of your discipleship by what you've done. He measures the value of your discipleship by what you're doing. Are you getting up? Did you get up this morning? Did you roll out of bed this morning because you want to love God with everything you have and everything you are? Did you roll out of bed this morning to love other people with a spirit-empowered, others-oriented, self-sacrificing humble, servant-hearted, foot-washing kind of love. If that's why you got up this morning, you were living the most significant life you could possibly live. Now that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with discovering your passion and finding that dream and figure out your competencies and figure out a way to make a contribution and living at a high challenge level and you know, even aligning your passion with your pay and all of that kind of stuff. In fact, this week on the website, the follow-up resources have to do with assessing some of those things. All of that's fine until it becomes the source of your meaning and significance in life. Then it has ceased to become what God wants it to be. See, I think people make an extraordinary difference when they commit themselves to rolling out of bed every day, living every moment of every day to love God and to love people with a foot-washing kind of love and just allow that path to take them to wherever God wants them to go. That's the life God has called you to. That's the purpose of your life. And if that's how you live, Jesus says, now that you know these things, if you do them, you'll be blessed. That's how you live life to the full. Struck me as I was preparing uh, this talk, that the word purpose, you know, having a life with purpose, the word purpose is both a noun and a verb. On the one hand, 
our culture, even in the church, tells us that your life has to have a purpose, which is a noun. I would say Jesus is calling, calling us to be purposeful about how we live our life, to live our life with purpose, with the purpose of loving God and loving people. If you want to live life to the full and be blessed as you do, let's pray together. Father, sometimes it's hard to untangle the narratives and the stories that our culture tells us from the narratives and the stories that you tell us in the scriptures. God, for those who are here this morning who are living in the insecurity of insignificance, who are experiencing the fear and the frustration of not knowing what their purpose is, I pray that you would invite them into a life lived on purpose, lived purposefully, lived in love. God, for those who are here this morning and they've cobbled a purposeful life out of things other than what we've been talking about this morning, of good things like fun and fulfillment and, and contributing to the common good, um, I pray that you would recenter us, that you would decenter us from our own story and invite you into the middle so that we can focus on the life of love that you've called us to. Father, we want to live the abundant, the full life that you have for us. And we know that the beginning and the middle and the end of that life is self-sacrificing, foot-washing love. And so we bring ourselves and say, here are my hands, here are my feet. Take my life and let me be what you want me to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.